0: They passed this campaign from one generation to the other, to the other, and it tells you something about what you need to really bend that arc of justice.
1: August 26th marks the 100th anniversary of the passage of the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote. You may not know a lot about the history of women's suffrage, but don't worry, a new podcast has been released to fill in all the details. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Ellen Goodman has spent most of her life chronicling social change and its impact on American life. A Pulitzer Prize winning columnist, she was one of the first to open up the op ed pages to women's voices. Recently, Ellen, along with Lynn Scherer of ABC News, launched She Votes, an eight part podcast examining the complex history of the women's suffrage movement and its enduring significance. Welcome to the podcast, Ellen. Thank
0: you, Michael. I'm glad to be here.
1: Well, I'm glad you're here as well. So, you know, you've had quite a journalist journey. You've been a journalist for, <laughs> for a pretty long time and have had a lot of really great experiences. You know, tell me, how, how did you get interested in journalism? And, you know, maybe let's talk about a couple of your significant milestones.
0: Right. Well, you know, I graduated college in 1963, which is, you know, practically the Dark Ages. And in those days, there were virtually no women writing, you know. I mean I went to work for Newsweek magazine as a researcher, as they called it, and there were literally no women writing for the news magazine. So that's where I started. I started my first job was working for Peter Benchley at Newsweek. And ironically Peter and I had been to college together, but he came and was a writer and I came and was a researcher. So those were kind of the battle days, although it was always an interesting and exciting occupation. And I started freelancing and then I went to the Detroit Free Press where they had just begun letting women into the city room. So it does sound a little bit like I walked four miles in the snow to school, <laughs> but that's really where my career started when there were very, very few women.
1: Okay, you said that you, you were a freelancer, but, you know, one of the things that I mentioned before is that you sort of made a name for yourself in the op-ed section. When did you start writing uh, editorials?
0: Well, I went to the Boston Globe in 1967. Uh, Boston's my hometown, and the Globe was an up-and-coming newspaper, and it was great to be there. And I was a, basically a feature writer for a number of years, and then the women's movement hit and i started by covering some meetings and those meetings you know you would kind of talk about how what they were talking about and what they were saying and then you realize that wait a minute they're talking about me (laughs) they're talking about my life so i started writing really about the women's movement and the new ideas that were in the air And then I started writing opinion pieces. My editor at the Globe at that time, the amazing Tom Winship, used to laugh and say he was trying to get my opinions out of the news hole. (laughs) But I think that was only partially true. So I started writing actually an op-ed column for the Living Page, which was what the women's pages were called at my paper. And gradually, then I had a Neiman Fellowship which a number of your listeners may know about, mid career Journalism Fellowship. And when I came back, I was syndicated and I was syndicated by the Washington Post Writers Group. And they started running my column on the op-ed page. And so then did all the other newspapers that picked it up. They gradually all started running it on the op-ed pages. And that was still pretty new because in those days you know women were writing about you know fashion furnishings families and men were writing about you know foreign affairs politics and so forth and there was it was really you know separate worlds and i always wanted to knock down the barrier between those worlds partially was the women's movement slogan the personal is political <laughs> that The things we were thinking about and writing about, you know, big issues, whether they were about family life or they were about politics, they crossed those borders. And uh, newspapers had to start crossing those borders, too, and opening up the op-ed pages to these ideas as well as to us as women.
1: So did you encounter a lot of pushback from the newsroom, but maybe also from the public? I mean, was the public receptive to ha- having a, a woman on the opinion page?
0: Well, the public, including a lot of women readers was very receptive to it. The editors, the gatekeepers for a while, didn't know where to, they liked my column. They would buy it and then they wouldn't know where to put it, you know, because they had a kind of rigid idea of how the newspaper was divided up in parts. But the readers didn't have that idea. So the readers were very responsive to the work that I was doing and to the fact that it was on the op-ed page. They were glad to see the issues that really mattered in their lives, given that serious space in the paper.
1: You know, one of the things that you were talking about is how you went to a... You know, women's movement meeting. You started covering them, and then suddenly realizing they were speaking to you. And I see that it reminds me of things I've seen in the last few years around the Me Too movement, or even the the current calls for social justice right now. That there are journalists who who see these things out in the real world, and suddenly they they're sort of invigorated. That you know, yeah, I should try to make these changes in my newsroom. I should try to write more of these types of stories. To you know, expose this unfairness. What are your thoughts about that?
0: Well, we did that too at the Boston Globe. (laughs) There were a relatively small group of us who were women and a group from the National Organization for Women sat in at our editor's office, you know, and that was quite an experience for him. So when our little group, of familiar and high-quality journalists <laughs> came and presented him. We put together a document. This is all pre-PowerPoint, you know. We put together a document called, you know, S- Sexism Morning, Evening, and Sunday, you know. <laughs> and we did it in a very old-fashioned way with, you know, clips and numbers. But we we talked about how the paper described women like. You know, Golda Meir, grandmother of six, became prime minister of Israel today. And we talked about the numbers of how few women there were. There were so few women also as editors. And we presented that to the editor. And of course, you know, we were his charmed staff members. So he was, and he was very receptive to it. In any case, he was very receptive to the big social changes of our time. And I think that's true. It's interesting for journalism, in our podcast, She Votes, we have an episode, episode six, which is on how the media covered suffrage and how the media was both a reflection of the times and also a change agent and how the suffrage movement transformed some of that their relationship to the media over time. So this is nothing new in that sense. We did that as second wave feminists as well, because the early coverage of, say, the women's movement was, you know, kind of hairy-legged, combat-booted women. And uh, we changed that coverage to one that had to do with, with rights and relationships.
1: When you started you know, as a journalist, and you you learned about the women's movement, you know, how aware were you of the women's suffrage movement now of 100 years ago?
0: I was aware in a very, very blithe way. You know, if you had asked, if you would put down the list of suffragists whose names I knew, it probably would have ended at Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And I probably had this idea that, yeah, they went for suffrage, and it was inevitable, you know, okay, we got suffrage, big deal, it's over. And having done the both the research and the interviewing and the thinking with my friend Lynn Schur from ABC News, the story is so incredible and so dramatic. And the story of the persistence of this diverse and engaged group of women who pursued the right to vote over three generations until they finally, finally pushed their way. It's just remarkable, you know, people say, oh, you know, a hundred years ago they gave women the right to vote. Well, guess what? <laughs> they didn't give women anything. They lobbied, they pushed, they campaigned, they went to jail, they were beaten, they were force-fed. They struggled for an extremely simple right, the right of full citizenship, which had been denied them so long. And even 100 years ago, when the 19th Amendment passed, it was by no means complete. That right was by no means complete. African-American women were still uh, barred in the southern states. Uh, We still didn't, the Native American women, Chinese people, they also didn't have the right to vote. And today we are still struggling with the issues of voter suppression.
1: Yeah. And it's kind of fascinating that you say that, you know, your initial thought was, well, this is obviously this was going to happen. But then in your research, you reveal that this wasn't necessarily going to happen. This took people making sacrifices over many decades to make this happen. And then here we are today, you know, still, you know, addressing many of the concerns of the women's movement and in the suffrage movement.
0: Absolutely. I think we really are still addressing the issue of power and who will share it. When we think about whether this election will be hacked, whether this election will there will be voter suppression in this election, it's all about the attempt to maintain power and not to share it. And that was certainly true from the beginning of the suffrage movement. And it was true through the Jim Crow era, when women had the right to vote, Black people had the right to vote, but they couldn't exercise it because the state put so many barriers deliberately in order to maintain white supremacy.
1: It's amazing because there's so many people who think that, oh, all these issues are in the hit- are in the past. And and they don't necessarily affect what's going on today. And these things are all kind of decided. But once we start digging in, like you and, and uh, Lynn did in the research for your podcast, you begin to realize that this is an ongoing struggle. It's always an ongoing struggle. So you've launched a podcast. So what was the you know what was the inspiration for that?
0: Well, it's it's interesting. Now uh, Lynn sure had been covering Susan B. Anthony. She'd written books about Susan B. Anthony. She'd written a play. And we had both been history buffs our whole lives. I was a history major in college. She was a, actually a Greek major originally, but a suffrage buff too. And we thought, you know, it's it's going to be 2020 next year. This is pre-pandemic and last year. And so many people don't know much about suffrage. Wouldn't it be great to do a podcast that was about suffrage, but also about what our own experiences were, and also about 2020 and what's going on right now. So we started thinking about it, and we found this wonderful podcast producer, Wonder Media Network, who are young women and very much committed to another generation of feminism. And we said we wanted to work with them. And we started working on it, and we started thinking about many different things. Lynn had a broadcast career, I had a print career. So it was interesting to do our interviews together. And it was also interesting, particularly for me to write for the ear rather than the eye.
1: So how did you learn to do that? And what were kind of the challenges of that?
0: Well, some of it is, I don't know how it is been in your newsroom, but some of it is whenever I was writing a column, I would People would say they'd see my lips moving, you know, (laughs) it's not, it's not lips moving when you read, but lips moving when you write, because you want to hear how it sounds in your ear anyway. But some of it is just saying it out loud and listening and then writing it again and doing it with each other. Lynn and I had known each other for a long, long time and we'd worked together even though in very different organizations but we'd covered politics together. We'd covered conventions together. We'd covered campaigns together. So we had an easy rapport with each other to go back and forth to each say, yeah, eh, that didn't sound, that didn't sound so great. Let's do that again. And also I would say that the interesting thing is that a podcast is much more conversational than it is didactic. You know, it's like you're having a conversation with someone over your over your back fence. And that is something you just can can learn to do.
1: And also, I would imagine, because it's not didactic, because you're not broadcasting, you're not telling people stuff, you're conversing with them. It's also a good way to pass along the story you're trying to tell. People listen a different way when they're listening to a conversation, I think.
0: Yeah. And you're telling stories which is probably the oldest form of communication or journalism in the world. So, for example, we tell the story that a surprising number of people have never heard about Susan B. Anthony when she was arrested for the crime of voting while female. So in 1972, she went to vote for Ulysses S. Grant and women didn't have the vote, but she decided they really did have the vote because they were citizens. So she kind of pushed her way, and she wasn't alone, but she was the only woman who was arrested for this crime of voting while female. And she was arrested, tried, convicted, fined for this crime, and she refused to pay her fine. So Susan B. Anthony, the mother of us all, remains a convicted felon to this day, (laughs) which I guess means there are states in in which she couldn't vote even in 2020. So there are stories that are just such incredibly rich parts of the single story of justice, of of suffrage.
1: I know that your idea for, your and Lynn's idea of doing the podcast, oh, this is the the 100th anniversary of, of the vote, Because we're journalists and we like big round numbers. We like big anniversaries. But, you know, besides the big number, why is it important for us to tell this story, to understand this story?
0: Well, one woman, Paula Giddings, who's an African-American historian at Smith, said that if you know the story of suffrage, you know the story of America in all of its complexity. I just misquoted her, but that was in general what she said. And I think that's absolutely true. Also, it's one of the truly great stories. So a hundred years ago, when suffrage passed, when the bill was signed on August 26, 1920, we doubled the number of voters in America. That's huge. I mean, that doesn't happen. That's probably an incredible change. Even though change on the ground was not that fast, It's an amazing, it's also, I think, a story of persistence that we really need today because there is a lot of sort of feeling that, oh God, where are we? Things are so terrible. What can I do? I can't change anything. Why should I even bother to vote? And this story of the persistence of one generation, there was only one woman who lived long enough to vote, who had been at Seneca Falls in 1848. She had been there as a child. So they passed this campaign from one generation to the other, to the other. And it tells you something about what you need to really bend that arc of justice.
1: Yeah. And, you know, that change may not come in your lifetime, but it's important to continue you know, moving the struggle forward so that change eventually will be be enacted. That's
0: Susan B. Anthony's famous line, failure is impossible. It was the last line that she said publicly before her death.
1: Well, what can people expect from your podcast?
0: Well, I think they can expect stories and fun (laughs) and some really compelling deep dives into the complexity of what actually happened. We tell, for example one of our last episodes is about literally the day that suffrage passed. And what happened is the suffrage vote ratification came down to one state, Tennessee. All eyes were on Tennessee. We needed to have 36 states in order to pass the 19th Amendment. And for a variety of reasons, Tennessee was the last state that we had any chance of getting. And it was a a state that had union and Confederate heritage that had everything dramatic going on that you can imagine. All the pros and all the anti-suffragists arrived at the scene, you know, and as did all the lobbyists for the liquor industry and the railroad industry. And on that day, nobody knew, nobody knew whether suffrage would pass. And at the last minute in the state house, there was one state legislator, Harry Byrne. He was wearing a rose that symbolized him being opposed to suffrage. And he got a letter that his mother, this fabulous woman named Feb Byrne, had sent to him that said, among many other things, you know, be a good boy and vote for suffrage. And this 24 year old, The youngest state legislator in Tennessee changed his vote right then, and suffrage passed by one vote. So if you ever think your vote doesn't matter, just remember Harry Byrne, because suffrage passed in Tennessee by one vote.
1: One boy doing what his mother told him to do. Exactly.
0: We love that. (laughs) We love his mother.
1: (laughs) So this is your first podcast. What do you think of the whole experience?
0: I loved it. It was great fun, you know. As a um, columnist, you kind of put the bell jar over your head and you write just alone and you think it through and you're on your own. And a podcast is much more of a group experience. First of all, my friend Lynn and I did this together, which was great fun. Second of all, we had a you know a producer and a bunch of other people, a whole team. That's very different. I want to say one other thing. You know, we started this podcast assuming we would be going everywhere, that we would go to Seneca Falls and Rochester, that we would go to the suffrage forest in New Hampshire, that we would go to Tennessee. And we got as far as Rochester and Seneca Falls, scene of the first women's rights convention that included suffrage on the platform. And then, as you know, kaboom! COVID-19 arrived and from then on Lynn and I were doing our work. I was in Boston, Lynn was in New York State, our podcast producer was in Brooklyn when we we converted our closets into studios and put, you know, quilts over our heads and our microphones, you know. This is I'm sure you've heard this story from other podcasters now, but This was just not what we had predicted that we would be doing. I think that's another thing that you learn in journalism. You know, you improvise, you pivot, you get the story any way you can.
1: The glamorous lifestyle of the the podcast. Yeah, the podcast with
0: a quilt over her head.
1: (laughs) With a quilt over her head. Ellen, the podcast is called She Votes from Wonder Media Network. It's something you produced with your friend Lynn Schur of ABC News. I have not listened to the podcast yet. I'm going to subscribe to it and listen to it because it it sounds like something great. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicole Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Emilia Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.